This is No Stop Lights with Ken Ard. Thank you for finding us again. No Stop Lights. I want to thank our sponsors, Pepsi of Florence, Carolina Bank, Mickey Fins, Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op, Francis Marion, University of McLeod Health, McCall Farms, Victors, and PLC Commercial. We're, we're newbies at the podcast genre of digital of digital media, um, and we're trying to do a better job of recognizing our sponsors, but we certainly do. Uh, we're, we're but a pup in the podcast space, but we certainly do appreciate all of our sponsors. We're doing all we can. The, these sponsors are not necessarily interested. Uh, that, that, that's unfair. They are interested in improving their market shares, but the majority of what they've done is committed to support a local media endeavor um, in an era where we're, we're, we're experiencing a massive decentralization of news. You've got newspapers and television networks and radio stations, and um, this is not an extension of a radio show that I do, but rather a separate product. And I went out and, and met with all these individuals, and I think I uh, try to explain or articulate where I wanted this, this effort to go. We're not there yet by any stretch of the imagination, but I want to make sure our sponsors know that none of this would have been possible without them. We are beginning to integrate some interns from Francis Marion University into this experiential learning. Um, it's an adaptation of higher education. It's certainly not. I'm not a professor. You guys know that. I'm not a tutor. I'm not uh, an academic by any stretch of the imagination. But I've lived in the real world and Dr. Fred Carter out at Francis Marion felt it was invaluable for young people not only to get formal education, but um, but kind of a hands-on understanding uh, in some of the mass common political science departments about you know hey this is how the world works. I mean there there are there are words on a blackboard. There are tutorials and teaching seminars and and lessons to be learned. And there's a right, right way to do this, but inevitably. It's where the rubber hits the road. Can I apply that skill in a real-world sense uh, and, and, and gainfully become employed and make a living? And, and I'm certainly enthusiastically, um, enthusiastically not just supportive of that, but very honored that um, Dr. Carter and Francis Marion University would, would allow us to participate in some of this um, newfound experiential learning that we do believe prepares kids uh, much better for the world uh, outside of the classroom. So um, thank you, sponsors. And I mean that sincerely. Thank you for all you've done to allow this to be uh, a fledgling, uh, early, early kind of, um, I don't know, early iteration of what we hope it'll eventually uh, become. I don't have a high horse and I don't have a soapbox, but this would be, I, I guess, therapeutic or cathartic on my behalf. Um, when you are an opinion monster, and I guess... I'm an opinion monster. Um, I'm not formally trained. I'm not formally educated. I try to read. I try to study. I try to interact with people who understand the subjects of which I make an attempt to try and elaborate on. But when you're an opinion monster, very often we're guilty of trying to outsmart ourselves. Um, we're, we get into uh, psychoanalysis and psychobabble and psychiatry and, and psychology and what makes this happen and what makes that happen and, and why didn't this go this way and why did that go um, that way? 
I like being an opinion monster because there is no right answer. I mean, it's not math. It's not a hard science. It's not engineering. Uh, you got to have this much rebar and this much concrete to build a bridge across this uh, span of river. I'm not in that business. I'm not in the hard science. It is a very, very soft science that I'm a part of. And, and, I, and I've kind of uh, referred to myself and the business of which I'm a part of as an opinion monster. Um, and I guess this would be me pleading guilty to try and outsmart myself. We, we, we designate these eras of life. Um, I'll give an example. I grew up in the post-Second World War II world. I mean, that's undeniable. Uh, a bit of my life has been the Reagan Revolution. Um, some of my life was um, the post-9-11 world, the post-Vietnam world. The, 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 the Second World War shaped the world of which I have lived every second of my life in more than anything else. I mean, fundamentally to the victor go the spoils. Um, America had a lot of say in what the world looked like after, um, after the mid 1940s, I was born in 1963. So every second of my life has been spent as a white male American in the second post-World War II world. But there have been other events that have shaped. The Vietnam conflict uh, comes to mind. The Nixon-Watergate scandal um, comes to mind. I'm referring to politics and culture in general. 9-11 changed the world uh, forever. Uh, the, the 2008, I mean, if you're in business, understand business, the economy, 2008, uh, the housing crisis, the financial meltdown, uh, the uh, the convergence of business and government with TARP and the bailout. I mean, that was a, a very profound moment in American history. I would argue probably uh, the day the government decided to bail the banks out, the big banks, Goldman, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, Bank of America, the large, large Wall Street banks, was the day it was inevitable someone like Donald Trump uh, was going to show up, some populist, nationalist, um, hero with a common man, hero with a working man, um, you know, uh, antagonist to the elites was going to, was going to show up. The most recent, I think, um, line of demarcation in where society was and where it is is COVID. And it's easy to second guess. It's easy to armchair quarterback. I was always um, skeptical of what the government was telling us because I don't think they had enough information to be as sure as they were about what they were saying. That's that's kind of the psycho babble that sets the table uh, for what I'm about to try and and explain. And it's, it's kind of a theory I have. Uh, I got a few notes here. Not many, but I got a few notes here. Um, the post-COVID world has included an enormous degree of challenge to small business men and women. In particular, if you're in the hospitality, the services industry, um, if you're requiring young people in particular, it's probably not so much in manufacturing or industry. I mean, there's no doubt it shocked the economy. I mean, there's no question about it. And we can talk about, you know, the increase uh, American Rescue Plan, the CARES Act, the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, at the end of the day, we increased the M2 money supply from about $15 trillion to $22 trillion. Janet Yellen, 
Um, Treasury Secretary said inflation would be transitory. I'm not formally educated, uh, nor am I an economist, but I knew damn well that if you increase the money supply from 15 to trillion to 22 trillion, and and we've kind of sort of agreed, we we've argued that a trillion dollars is almost supernatural. I mean, it's a trillion, well, I'm going to give you a trillion seconds ago was 32,000 some odd years. A trillion seconds was 32,000 some odd years. We printed $7 trillion in digital currency and infused or injected that into the economy in about a year and a half. And then you can argue, well, we had to, we didn't have to, we should have done this, should have done that. The reality is we increased the M2 money supply from 15 to $22 trillion. Some would say we had to do it. Some would say it was reckless and careless. Should have never, should have never done it. We did. Here we are. We're dealing with the most inflationary period of the post-Second World War II world. I can't speak to what happened pre-Second World. I don't have any idea. Uh, the Dust Bowl, the Civil War, uh, you know, exploring the Louisiana Purchase, the Revolutionary War, the Jeffersonian Hammer. I mean, I've read about it, but I've not lived it. And there's a lot of difference in living it and reading about it. I have lived uh, the pre-COVID America and the post-COVID America. And I think, one of the issues that we have, uh, and once again, opinion monster, outsmarting myself, one of the issues we're dealing with today is <sighs> small business men and women not being able to provide the level of service that they wish they could and you believe you deserve. I'm talking about the services industry. I'm talking about um, the hospitality sector, restaurants and and movie theaters and hotels. And uh, when people go out to have fun, you expect to be the primary uh, recipient of the good graces. In other words, the person at work is hired to make you happy in hospitality and service. The person at work is hired to service you. So here's my theory. Um, and, and, I, and I'll get a bit wonky here for just a second, but stick with me. I went back and looked at a Gallup poll, and, and this is a number that I think is worthy of, um, of, of kind of uh, allowing a conversation to evolve. In the year 1990, 375 18- to 25-year-olds were asked if they would work if they had enough money not to. 18 to 25-year-olds, roughly 400, roughly 400 18 to 25-year-olds were asked, would you work if you had enough money to not work? And in 1997% said they would not work. They would not work if they had enough money. Um, I get it. I mean, I understand it. You know what that number is today? It's 30%. So something has happened there. I mean, something has happened. I'm not saying this generation is better than that generation. I mean, I'm technically last generation of the baby boomers. Um, you're welcome for the $34 trillion of federal debt that we have been largely responsible for. We love our grandkids, but we're leaving them a debt of which they'll have very little ability to pay. It's hard to say that. I mean, it's almost criminal what we're doing with the financial balance sheet of our country. But let's go back to this. 18, 25-year-olds. And, and why am I using that subset? Why am I monitoring or, or using data that reflects what 18 to 25 years? And I didn't say 1920. I said 1990. So roughly 35, 34 years ago, 7% of 18 to 25-year-olds said if they had enough money, they wouldn't go to work. See, I believe that the human experience 
is fulfilled when we celebrate the intrinsic motivation to work, the natural motivation to get up and go to work, not because you need to earn a living. I mean, they're, they're obviously mutually connected one to another. They're not exclusive by any stretch of the imagination, but there's a, there, there's a natural intrinsic motivation to go work, or there's not. And it seems to me, and once again, I'm not picking on certain generations. Generation X, YZ, millennials, baby boomers, the greatest generation. There's no doubt, and I've looked at a lot of polling in regards to work ethic. And as, as society, and the greatest generation, when you said, hey, what are the most 10, what are the 10 most important principles of which you've based your life on? Work ethic is number four, number five, number six. When you get to my generation, baby boomers, it's number five, six, or seven. When you get to the next generation, it's number six, seven, or eight. Uh, when you get to the to the current generation, I guess generation Z, it doesn't register. I mean, work ethic is just not that important. Why is work ethic? I mean, if if the data is right. I mean, you can, you can refute the data. You can not refuse to believe the data. And I would imagine there are other data points and analytics out there that say something other than what I'm, um, the theory I have. But, but why are we not as naturally motivated to work unless it's required for us to make a living? I don't know the percentage of Americans who are trust fund babies. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I don't, I can't begin to fathom. I mean, if you, if you inherit a family farm and Walmart, Target, and, the nicest housing development town was to be on your property. I would imagine, okay, go to the beach, sell, well, do whatever you'd like to do, buy a yacht. Uh, but the majority of people have to live in the real world. The overwhelming majority of people have to balance this intrinsic motivation to go to work with the ability or need uh, to, to earn a living. So let's go. And here's the theory. I mean, I've kind of set the table. Uh, once again, I probably outsmarted myself, not real hard, but, uh, but I've set the table for kind of the theory that I have. During COVID, we decided to pay people to not go to work. I mean, we've done that a lot. I mean, we, we, we've got disability programs, got mean-tested welfare, non-means-tested welfare. I mean, I could argue as a conservative Republican that since the New Deal, we have penalized productivity and will reward non-productivity pretty rampantly. I mean, far more, I think, than we're willing to admit. Um, I mean, if you make more money, you pay a higher percentage of taxes. Uh, you know, uh, anyway, uh, anyway, I, I, I'll leave the politics alone for this podcast. Um, I, here, here's my theory, and, and, and it's, it's specific to the, to the service industry and hospitality. We live in a culture today that celebrates individualism. I'm a Republican. I mean, I believe in rugged individualism. I'm not a collectivist. I'm certainly not a redistributionist. I am a believer in, at some level, we have to consider the common good. We have to support the common good. We have to care for one another. I am my brother's keeper to some degree. I don't think to the extent or degree that liberal Democrats or radical liberals believe that we must. But, but you know, the safety net is here. The safety hammock is over there. I'm a safety net kind of guy. I mean, I do believe we have a moral obligation as human beings to care for our fellow man. And when someone has a, a hardship in their life, um, deserved or not, that there has to be some compassion that, that we involve ourselves there. But we live in a very individualistic and celebratory society. I think social media 
Um, I mean, it, it, you know, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, formerly MySpace. I mean, I'm doing a podcast today. Everybody has the ability to show you how important they think they are. Some are damn important. Some aren't very important at all. Um, there are things I say at times that I think should be more considered than other things I say at other times. But in the post-COVID world, we, we've afflicted a generation of young people into believing that that there's something owed to them, that there's something. Now, now, I'm not picking on this particular generation. The government decided to say, hey, we're shutting these businesses down, um, but we're going to pay you money to not go to work. What we really did, and I don't want to get into the weeds on PPP or employment retention tax credits. I mean, I think I could, but I don't want to. We, we in essence, took the businesses in America and turned them into quasi-unemployment agencies. I mean, the government ran uh, the racket. The government said to the business owner, you can't open your business, but we're going to give you money to pay your employee to not come to work. And and I think we, I think we've lost our way. I mean, I think we've really and truly lost our way. And I think that reflects in some of this polling data. And I think fundamentally, one of the issues that young people are dealing with today is believing and having been told and having been convinced that they are the centers of the universe. Every damn one of us at some level wants to be the center of the universe. I do. Dave Baker does. Whoever watching this podcast, you're lying through your teeth if you say you're totally and completely altruistic and you don't believe you deserve anything from society. We, we all, to some degree, at some level, are self-preservationists and aspire to be more important than we really are, more essential than we really are, more celebrated than we really are. And I think I think social media has been an accelerant. I mean, it's been the gas on the fire. We were headed down the road of, of you know, every individual believing they're the most important creation God ever breathed life into. Guilty of charge. I mean, I'll admit I am a part of that. Have to be guarded about it. Have to step back and say, hey, dude, I mean, you're one of um, 7 billion you're one of 338 million Americans. Uh, you ain't that big a deal. So, so stop with that. But, but I believe when you are in the business of hospitality, when you're in the business of service, it requires a servant's heart. It requires an intrinsic ability to say, for the next eight hours, I'm not center of the universe. These people who are coming to my restaurant are. These people that are ordering things off of uh, this website are. Um, you put yourself in a very secondary position, and you put the customer front and center. The customer is there. He's paying the bills. He's he's um he's expecting a high degree of service, high level of, of accommodation, and it's damn hard for us today. I mean, it's hard to tell a young person, hey, work's not that important. In fact, we'll pay you to not work, and that's the story for another podcast. The small businessmen and women of America were trying hard to keep their businesses afloat while the government was the biggest competitor they had for a workforce. And I think we've lessened, we've convinced young people that work doesn't have to be that important. Does that mean every young person is lazy? Of course not. Does that mean that every young person is, is standing by the mailbox waiting on a government check to come? And of course it doesn't. I'm not insinuating that. And please don't be misled if you think I am insinuating that. But I do believe in the sectors that have had the most problems. And I read Facebook. I read Twitter. I watch podcasts. I mean, I hear some of these conversations on the periphery. And there's no doubt that small business is struggling. 
small business and the hospitality and service sectors are really struggling. And their biggest struggle is not that they forgot how to run their business, but their, their business depends and requires employees, dedicated employees who have the intrinsic ability to say for the next eight hours, I'm not center of the universe. Those people at table nine are. Those people who ordered those suitcases off Amazon or wherever, wherever it is we're talking about. Amazon will be a conglomerate, but I'm particularly talking about small business uh, men and women. And I don't know how we restore that. I don't know how we rejuvenate the soul and, 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 and just, just, just create a, an energy that allows us to believe that I'm not center of the universe. That, that's, that's a weird theory, but it's a theory I have, and it goes all the way back to COVID. It goes all the way back to, well, it really goes back to the New Deal. And, 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 and government saying, hey, you know, life has been unfair to you, and because it's been unfair to you, here's a check. And, and I know you're struggling with this or that or something else, and, and here's another check. And I, and I just think we've, we've allowed the government to compete in a space that it was never intended to compete, and that is the marketplace of employment. And when you see a, uh, a small businessman or woman struggling, and, and, I, and I know they struggle because I read things on Facebook, this business sucks, this business sucks. Now, I don't know why people do that. I mean, I really and truly, it's a bizarre behavior to me. Um, I gave a speech in Greenville, South Carolina, when I ran for lieutenant governor. Robert Haley's a good friend of mine. Robert has gone on to be one of the most renowned Republican pollsters in America today. But Robert, um, Robert ran my campaign for lieutenant governor, and I went to Greenville one Tuesday and spoke to a, to a group. I mean, Republicans, uh, by and large, uh, People in the upstate, but that's where a lot of Republican voters in South Carolina went up and I, and I gave one of these smart guy speeches and I talked about the economy and I talked about EBITDA and I talked about finance, NOI, ROI, quantitative easing, quantitative tie and the Federal Reserve and the Federal lending window and, you know, and uh, paper debt and overnight paper and all this other sort of thing. Got in the car and I told Robert, I said, Robert, I nailed it. I mean, that, that was one of the best speeches I've ever given. And, and I'll never get Robert said, that speech made no sense to those people in that room. What do you mean it didn't make any sense, Robert? I mean, that that's, I mean, you see how technical I was and how informed I was and how masterful I was and the way I talked about EBITDA and, and you know, and the economy in general and debt and leverage and NOI and all the, Robert said, the majority of people don't run businesses. Um, the, the, the very few percentage of Americans run businesses. And it dawned on me, he's right. Um, the majority of us are consumers, not that business owners aren't consumers, but, but I would just ask, and I'm not asking for sympathy. I mean, you have every right to complain. You have every right to get on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok and tell the world that that place sucked. I just wish you wouldn't. And the reason I wish you wouldn't is because I think I understand with a certain degree of intimacy what these businesses are dealing with and trying to find people who want to work, take pride in their work and will put themselves on the back burner for eight hours and you on the front burner. That's the post-COVID world. That's, I mean, that, that has something to do with debt because ah, the payments to people to not go to work, um, the competitive force the government became in the marketplace uh, for employment was funded largely by CARES and the American Rescue Plan and the Inflation Reduction Act. But, uh, but my theory is that we've created a culture in a society where we all want to be centers of the universe. And for eight hours when someone depends on you to be hospitable, you're not the center of the universe. 
That person that ordered that steak is, that person that ordered that mixed drink is, that person that's staying in that, in that hotel room um, does. And, and, I, and I'll close with this because I, I, this is a great lesson. My father, I mean, I've talked a lot about my dad on the radio, on the podcast. My dad was my, uh, my obviously my paternal influence, but he was the largest male influence in my life. Kind of a dominating figure, pain in the ass at times, um, but a boss man, a father, a mentor, uh, a hero, uh, a ghost. I mean, he was a he was a lot of things. I mean, most most father son relationships involve about half the time your dad's your hero, the other half the time he's a ghost, uh, and then we all can kind of kind of relate to that if you've involved if you are or have been involved in a father son relationship. But my dad told my brother and I. At a very early age, when he started his business, I was born in 63. My dad started a business in 63, so the business grew as I grew. And I can remember at about eight or nine years old, my dad telling me, I know you got a game, and I know you want me to be there, and I probably need to be there, but I've got work to do. I've got a business that I've started, and I want to make a a better life for you and your mom and your brother and your sister, and the only way I can do that is to go to work. In essence, my dad was saying, son, you're important to me. You're centrally important to me, but you're not a center of the universe. Not today. Not today. Today, I've got trucks, and I've got beds, and I've got employees, and I've got responsibilities, and I've got debt, and i got to take care of that stuff. I love you, and I wish I could be at that game, but I can't because these responsibilities right now take precedent priority. Great lesson. Phenomenal lesson. And I'm not saying stop being a helicopter parent, stop being an overbearing parent, stop being a lawnmower parent. Parent the way you choose to parent. But understand that to the parent that says, and I've seen it on Facebook, and you guys have seen it, hey, for the last 13 years, I hadn't missed a practice nor, nor a game. I love my kid. My dad loved me. But my dad also wanted me to learn at a very early age that I'm not the center of the universe. We're raising a generation of kids who believe that they're the center of the universe and they didn't come up with all that on their own. We've convinced them that they're the centers of the universe. And at times they are. I mean, they're the most precious, important parts of our life. But when you look at 18 to 25 year olds today, work is not as important as it was. They don't like working in hospitality because for eight hours they got to make you more important than they think they are.